Welcome to the Church at Rocky Peaks downloadable messages and podcasts. This week we continue our three-part series, Changing the Way You Think, Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. And today's message is brought to us by our lead pastor, Mike Yearly, and it's entitled, Counterculture. Well, today we're continuing this series that we just started last week. It's called uh, Changing the Way We Think. It's a study of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. And last week we saw, if you were here, that the core issue in the church of Corinth is that they'd come to Christ in an amazing way. There's no, there's no question that out of their pagan background, they had a true conversion experience. The Holy Spirit came into life, started changing them from the inside out. A lot of supernatural stuff going on in their church. So God really confirmed the message. No doubt they were born again. They were followers of Jesus and so on. But as time went on, after the Apostle Paul left, of course he's there a year and a half, they kind of went back to their old ways of thinking, and they began thinking like the culture around them. And so the result was they were not growing up spiritually. They were Christians, no question, but they were staying spiritual babes. And we talked about that last week, how important it is to catch this, because we've said in our own lives, it's possible for a person, for us to come to Jesus. Like, I don't know how long it's been since you gave your life to Jesus. If you're not a Christian, I'm going to give you a chance to give your life to Jesus at the end of the service today. So just give you a heads up on that. If you've been saying, I think I'm getting really close, maybe today's your day. But if, you've been, if you're already a follower of Jesus, whether it's been a year or six months or you know, five years or ten years or fifty years, it doesn't really matter. But what we learned last week, it's possible to give your life to Jesus, have a true conversion experience, have the Holy Spirit come into your life and yet never really change because we never change the way we think. And that's what had happened to these Corinthians. So were they followers of Jesus? Absolutely. Born again? Absolutely. But they had all these problems in their church. They were not experiencing God's will in their life. Remember we saw last week Romans 12 too. It's God's will for our minds to be transformed and that leads to experiencing God's will, his good and perfect and pleasing will. But it takes a transformation of our minds. They hadn't experienced that and as a result, they had all kinds of problems in their church and in their personal lives, major problems. And the first problem we come to today as we go into chapter one was problems they were dividing over church leadership. Not that they've ever heard of that, but... It's the sort of thing, you know, it happens sometimes in churches or in movements. And in their case, what had happened is the Apostle Paul was the one who started the church. And so there was a lot of people that said, hey, Apostle Paul, he's our man. He's an amazing guy. We are followers of the Apostle Paul. We're like disciples of Paul. Others in the church, they weren't so big on Paul. They were more taken with another uh, kind of another teacher named Apollos. You studied him this week in your life group homework. Uh, he was a man from Alexandria, different schooling, different training, different style. And some people said, well, you know, Paul's okay, but we're really followers of Apollos. Some of them said, you know, you're all wet. Uh, really, the main man is the apostle Peter, remember? I mean, he's like the rock. Jesus is going to build the church on the rock. And he's the main man. He's back at Jerusalem, and, and we're following him. He's more conservative. He's uh, kind of more traditional sort of guy. And then some said, hey, we don't need any leaders anyway. What do we need leaders for? We've got Jesus. We just, we're followers of Jesus. And so they had this division going on in the church. Now, the real problem going on, the kind of the problem below the problem, was that they're living in Corinth, and Corinth was famous for its philosophy. You know, it was in Greece. We talked about that. Greece was the ancient Mecca for philosophers. So Athens is only 50 miles away, home of Plato and Aristotle and so on. And so these people have grown up in a culture that's very philosophical. They're, they see themselves as very sophisticated people. They're the intelligentsia of the day. And so 
in that day, you would follow your favorite philosopher, much like fans in South America or Europe today would be big fans over their soccer teams. They just go crazy. This is my team, and it's absolutely my team, and you know, I'll fight anyone anywhere and, who doesn't like my team. And, and they were like that in terms of their philosophers. And so they'd come to Christ, and they came not as a result of human philosophy. They came as a result of God opening their eyes to the message of the truth of, in the gospel had nothing to do with human philosophy. Their whole lives were changed. had nothing to do with human philosophy. But now Paul's gone and they're going back and they're, they're taking on the, the values of their culture and they're bringing those into the church. And so now they're bringing their old ways of life into the church and saying like, instead of I'm a Plato or I'm a Aristotle or whatever, it's like, I'm a Paul, I'm a Paulus. And so the real problem was that they were still thinking like the culture around them. And so the Apostle Paul comes along and he's going to say to them, look, if you want to grow up spiritually, you're going to have to change the way you think about life. You've, you're just becoming like your culture around you. What happens is he gets a report from the town of, you know, he's in Ephesus. You remember if you remember the map, he's in Ephesus, 200 miles away from Corinth. He gets a, uh, a message. There's some, some visitors from Corinth from Chloe's household. Now, Chloe is a, a, probably a rich woman in the church of Corinth, and some of her servants or some of her relatives who apparently made the trip to Ephesus, who on business, we don't know what, but she was there, and they bring the report that, hey, the church is dividing over their favorite leaders. And so Paul is writing and saying, guys, you are just thinking about this whole deal totally wrong. If you don't change, it's going to tear your church apart. And he says, look, if you want to be truly wise, you're going to have to learn that, you know, you didn't come to Christ for this worldly wisdom. If you want to grow up spiritually, you can't, like, take the wisdom of your culture. You're going to have to learn how to think a new way. And so there in your note sheet, I've broken this down for you into several sections. We're going to go through all of chapter 1 together and then come back and talk about the principles. The first section there is called Church Fights in Corinth. Notice it goes for the first uh, seven verses. And then we'll break it up after that into other sections. Let's start there. Chapter 1 of your Bibles. Chapter 1 in verse 10. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree with one another, so there may be no divisions in your church. You may be perfectly united in mind and thought. So he's saying, you need to get along. I'm appealing to you in the name of Christ. Get along here. My brother, some from Chloe's household, so she's this rich woman, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, hey, I follow Paul. Another, hey, I'm like a disciple of Apollos. Another says, hey, I'm a big fan of Cephas. That's another name for Peter. And still others are the super spiritual people. Oh, we just follow Christ. Now, verse 13, Paul says, wait a second, time out here. Is Christ divided? Later we'll learn in this, in this uh, book, uh, we'll, Paul will talk about the body of Christ, how we all have different parts, you know. And he says, wait a second, it's like, we're, are we ripping apart the body of Christ here? You know, you're a, you're a Paul, you're going to rip him off from the body? You're, you're of Apollos, you're going to rip the leg off over here? He says, is, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Is that how you came to know God? You came to know God through, through Paul's death for you? Uh, were you baptized in the name of the, uh, Paul instead of, you know, baptized the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit? I baptized you in the name of Paul. You're now a follower of Paul. He says, man, I'm just really thankful looking back. I didn't really baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. Uh, you know, Crispus was the synagogue leader. You read about him this week in your life group homework uh, who, who came to Christ first. He says, I... I I mean, people were baptized in Corinth. Of course, that's why you know, uh, people said, I want to follow Christ. You've been baptized. But Paul didn't do it, apparently. 
He'd just kind of bring people to Christ, let someone else baptize them. He says, I, I didn't even baptize. I was baptized at Crispus and Gaius. So that, and he said, I'm kind of glad looking back because verse 15, now no one can say they were baptized into my name like I was making my own movement or something. And then he has a senior moment. He says, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I baptized the household of Stephanus, too. Yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, beyond that, I, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. Um, it's like, yeah, you look familiar. Uh, I baptized you? Was that it? Um, I don't know. I, your picture looks familiar, but I, I can't quite, quite remember put it. And verse 17, um, he says, here's the deal. For Christ didn't send me to baptize. That's not my assignment. My assignment is to preach the gospel. And then he says a very, something very powerful. Not with words of human wisdom lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now let me stop here for a second. This is a huge theme in the book of Corinth that's going to underwrite everything we do today. That there is God's wisdom and there is human wisdom, the world's wisdom. And these are in opposition. And if the, when we come to Jesus, we come to God and have our life transformed not through the world's wisdom, we come through God's wisdom. Now here to catch this, Here's his point. His point's going to be, if you want to grow up in your faith, you have to continue pursuing God's wisdom, not the world's wisdom. So what he's going to do is he's going to take them back to basics right now. He's going to take them back to the cross. He wants them to contemplate the cross. And he wants to remind them, when you came to Jesus and your life was transformed and everything was made new for you, do you remember it was through a message the world thought was ridiculous? You all there in Corinth, you want to be with the in crowd. You want to be cool. You want the wise people in Corinth to say you're cool. You want to fit in. Do you not realize that the way God transformed your life was through a message those people is ridiculous? That's going to message. So let's go on to this next section now. Contemplating the cross. And what he wants them to understand is that the heart of the Christian message is countercultural. In other words, if you're a follower of Jesus today, you are designed to be counter-cultural. You are not designed to fit into this culture. You are designed to stand out from this culture. Now, we can try to fit in if we want. But if you're going to follow Jesus, you're designed to stand out. So let's see what he says here. He's going to take him back to the basic message. He says, for the message of the cross, this message that this crucified Jewish carpenter in some third world country in the backwaters of the Roman province of Palestine and Syria, that this guy is actually the creator of the world, the Lord of the universe, the one who has the power of life and death, who has the power to change your life and will one day come back and he will judge the world and everyone will have to give account of their life to this man. He says, that message to most of the world, is ridiculous. He says, have you forgotten that? The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Only two kinds of people in the world. Those who are perishing, those who are being saved. He says, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. That's the message that changed their life. And then he quotes the Old Testament. Now the Apostle Paul, when he's teaching, often quotes the Old Testament to support his teaching, which is a good thing to do, obviously. He says, for it's written, and he quotes the Old Testament, I will God says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise 
and the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Verse 20, he says, now look, I want you to look around you, you Christians in Corinth, look around you. Where is the wise man? You are so taken and impressed with the intelligence of your culture, the philosophers and so on. He says, where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? He says, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? In other words, these guys you all think are so great and you're all trying to emulate and be just like them and be approved by them and you want, to be thinking, they want, you want them to think you're cool. He says, do you realize that they are totally lost? Why are you working so hard to get the approval of those who are perishing? Why is it so important for you to be thought wise by those who are ultimately foolish? Then he says, for since, verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. You know, as a race, we're an amazing race. God has designed us incredibly. We're a brilliant people. You see the technological advances through the centuries and rapidly increasing now. It's amazing. But what he's saying is in spite of our technological brilliance, we are spiritually blind. As bright as we are technologically as a race, spiritually we are blind. And he says, he says stop and think about it. All the wisest philosophers of the age, pick your people, you know, uh, Plato, Aristotle, the Stoics, the Egyptian philosophers, pick, pick them out. Pick out the wisest, he says, Stop and think about it. They never figured this whole thing out with all of their brilliance. They never figured out who God was. They never figured out who we are. They never figured out how the relationship works and what needs to happen. So he says, verse 21, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom, it did not know him. So God was pleased through what the world would consider foolishness, this message of the cross. He was pleased with the world consider foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Now, why do they see this so foolish? Well, he says, verse 22, well, the Jews, what are they looking for? Well, the Jews, they have this history of God doing big things. Uh, God splits the Red Sea. Uh, Joshua goes into the Jordan and the river stops. The walls fall down. They're looking for a Messiah who would come and who would conquer the world and kick out the Romans and bring in the golden age of Israel. That's who they're looking for. That's their paradigm. We're... This is the Messiah we're looking for. Jesus comes, and first of all, he claims to be God, but he's so weak that he's beat up by the Romans. He claims to be God's son, but he's crucified. Not exactly a very impressive resume if you're claiming to be the Messiah. He claims to be God's son, but he's hung on a tree and killed on a cross. In the Old Testament, it says that anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. How could he be the Messiah? Of course, what they're missing is what Paul explains in Galatians that he took our curse for us. That's why the whole curse thing. So the, their paradigm of what God's son would look like didn't fit at all with the Messiah who's crucified. And in fact, if you're a Jew, a crucified Messiah, obviously, or oxymoron, doesn't work. Well, what about the Greeks? It says the Jews look for miraculous signs. The Greeks look for wisdom. They're looking for someone like Plato or Aristotle. Something complicated, something hard to understand. Have you ever tried to read Plato? I have. It's not easy to understand. He's not easy to follow. You better be a, you know, have your best mental day. You have your ca- caffeine, you got your Starbucks there, get a good night's sleep. 
you know, you're going to need a jolt, you know, like Red Bull. If you're going to do Play-Doh, you've got to be on top of your game. And the Greeks are looking for something like that. They're looking for something complicated, something hard to understand, something that only the wise and the lofty and the intellectuals can really grasp hold of. And so this doesn't fit their paradigm. This crucified Jew story just doesn't work for them. Verse 23 says, But what we preach, our message is that Christ crucified a crucified Messiah. And it's a stumbling block to the Jews. It's foolishness to the Gentiles. He says, But to those whom God has called, (laughs) those whom God has chosen, there's only one kind of people that are going to get this message about Jesus. And those are the people that God has supernaturally called. Open their eyes. There's only one kind of person that comes to Jesus. Those are the people the Father draws. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. It's a miracle. When anyone comes to Christ, it's a miracle. Because the message doesn't make sense on the surface. To those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, doesn't matter your background, Christ is the power of God. He's the wisdom of God. It says, for the foolishness of God, what, what the world sees as foolishness, Turns out it's wiser than man's wisdom. And what the God of the world sees is weakness, you know, a crucified Messiah, crucified through weakness. Well, the weakness of God turns out stronger than men's strength. So let's follow his argument here. What he's saying is you have these divisions in your church. The reason is you're thinking like the world around you. Why are you trying to be like the world around you? The world around you totally missed the boat. They don't get it. Why are you trying to be like the wise people, the scholars, the intelligentsia? They don't understand. Why are you trying to win their approval? When God's power came into your life through a totally different channel. You see, that's his argument. Now let's go to the next section. This section is called Considering the Church. He says, okay, let's, let's come at this at a different angle. The whole argument is that God's wisdom and the world's wisdom are different. God does things differently than the world does things. He says, now case in point, let's look at you. <laughs> let's look at your lives. Let's stop and think about this. If you or I were going to be starting a movement to change the course of the world, If you and I were going to start a kingdom, who would we choose to be on our team? If you could choose anyone, your God, you can choose anyone to be on your team, who would you choose? You know who most of us would choose? We would choose the prom queen and the high school quarterback. We'd say, hey, we want the winners. Let's get the CEOs of the world. Let's get them on our side. Let's get the top political leaders of the world. Let's get the top athletes. Let's get the top. And we'll make this thing. And everyone will want to become a Christian because everyone loves these people and they want to be like these people. So we would choose the winners. Paul says, uh, <clears throat> look at yourself in Corinth. You're like the losers. Oh, how's that for your self-image? <laughs> I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm a loser. You know, this is what he says. Is that when God started a movement, he didn't pick the winners, he picked the losers. He picked not the powerful, not the influential, he picked the have-nots to start his movement. Why? Well, let's see. Let's see what he says. Verse 26, he says, Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Now, can we just do a sidebar here for a minute? I'm just going to leave that verse. I'm going to do a sidebar in the magazine, okay? Very important thing I want you to catch. He says, think of what you were when you were called. I want you to catch this. He did not say, think of who you are. He said, think of who you were. Here's a big message for us. It doesn't matter what you were when you came to Jesus. Because Jesus is going to transform your life. He's going to make you something amazing. 
In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it says, If any person comes to Christ, they are a new creation. The old is passed away, the new has come, right? He says, we used to look at Jesus in a fleshly way as if he were nobody. Oh boy, what a changed our mind about him. He says, we've got to change our mind about ourselves too. And so, so Paul says, remember what you were. So this is not like, he says, you were not the leaders of your culture. Now God's going to change you and transform you. You're going to be amazing. But remember where you came from. So he says, um, remember who you were. Not many of you were wise by humans. Scholars. You look at the church of Corinth. Not a lot of philosophers there. Not all these famous speakers in the church of Corinth. He says, not many were, uh, there were not many influential. You weren't the power brokers of your culture. Not many were of noble birth. You know, four generations gone to Harvard. That's not the way it was. He says, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise when he started his movement. He, he chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not. God chose the have-nots of the world to nullify the things that are. Now, why did he do that? Because verse 29, so that no one could boast before him. See, when God started a movement, he wanted it really clear, this amazing group thing called the church, it's not because these people are brilliant, it's not because they're brighter than the average bear, it's not because they're so gifted, it's not because they're so special, it has nothing to do with them. In fact, I'm going to choose the people that don't have a lot going for them so I can show the world my amazing power that's not about them, it's all about me. And so I get all the credit for it. And the world gets to see me through their lives and the transformation in their lives. Verse 30, he underlines this. He says, it's because of him. You might want to underline that. If you're a believer today, boy, so important you catch this. It's because of him, not because you're so bright, not because you're the intelligentsia, not because of your commitment. It's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus. He's become for us the wisdom from God. Well, what do you mean, Paul? What do you mean the wisdom of God? Well, first of all, Jesus is our righteousness, he says. It's, we were at odds with God. We were enemies of God, but through the cross we've been forgiven and we've been made righteous. He's our righteousness. Well, what else? Well, he's our holiness. That now we're able to change from the inside out and become like Jesus. Jesus is our holiness. Well, what else, Paul? Well, he's our redemption. We used to be like slaves to sin, and now we've been set free so we can follow God and, and soar to new heights. You see, he is our wisdom. That, well, that means our righteousness, our holiness. means our redemption. In verse 30, 31, Therefore, as it's written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so follow the train of thought with me. You're in Corinth. You're having divisions in your body. You're fighting. The reason is because you're buying into this worldly wisdom. You're living like the culture around you. You haven't changed the way you've thought. Why are you thinking that way? Don't you realize when we first came to Jesus, it was not through the wisdom of the world, it was totally different? Thus, if you want to grow up spiritually, you have to continue living by God's wisdom. You can't go back to think like your culture thinks. And that's the next step, the call to the counterculture. And, and through these first four chapters, this whole theme of the world's wisdom and God's wisdom is going to kind of weave in, in and out throughout the four chapters. I want you to jump ahead to chapter 3 where he's going to lay it out, this call to the counterculture, that if you're a follower of Jesus, part of your DNA is to be different. Now we'll talk later, what does that mean, being different? Because we've often misunderstood that in the past. At least the church in America. Chapter 3 and verse 18. Paul says, do not deceive yourselves. Now can you underline that? I'm going to give you a little tip. When, in the book of Corinth, several times Paul will, Say this, do not deceive yourself. 
And whenever he says that, we need to sit up and pay attention because what comes next is incredibly important. He's not wasting his words. When he says, don't deceive yourself, what he's saying is, you're about to step into a trap. You're on a very dangerous ledge. You're on a narrow ledge in the side of a cliff. Be very careful about your next step because it's very possible to deceive yourself. So what does he say? What's this danger? Do not deceive yourselves. If any one of you thinks he's wise by the standards of this age, he should become a fool so that he may become wise. It's a call of the counterculture. See what he's saying? He's saying, brothers and sisters, Christians, men and women, Rocky Peak, if we want to be wise... We have to have the courage to appear foolish. See? We'll talk more about that later on. And if we don't have the courage to appear foolish, we will never be wise. All right. Now, there in your note sheet, there's a section. We're going to do a little introspection. It's, it's, the question is, how countercultural are you? Now, in your life, I want you to be thinking that. How countercultural are you? If you're a follower of Jesus, how countercultural are you? Now, I want you to understand that this is not just a question for you. This is big time a question for me. And, in fact, one of the things that scares me the most about my life is my blind spots. I'm scared to death as a follower of Jesus that I have amazing blind spots that are cultural blind spots. In other words, that I'm following Jesus, I'm doing what I, I think I'm supposed to be doing, but one of my biggest fears is there's just areas where my culture has so infected me, I don't even see where I'm not following Jesus. Because it's not just the culture, it's the Christian culture in America that we're all a part of, and we just, we're just blind to it. I stop and think with me. You go back in church history. There was a time when Christians marched from Europe over to Israel to kill Muslims for Jesus. Now, would you call that a blind spot? It's like, uh, what part of the Sermon on the Mount were you reading? You know? And we look back and we say, how ridiculous that people in the name of Christ would go and kill Muslims, you know, and think they were doing God's will. Like, how ridiculous is that? And we look back and we say, that is just crazy. Oh, I wonder. In a couple hundred years, when Christians look back on our age, if Jesus hasn't come back, what they're going to say about us. How did they miss this? It was so obvious in God's word, and they just missed it. And I'll tell you what, it scares me to death. It scares me to death. One of the prayers of my life is, God, help me to understand where I have bought into the Christian culture of our age and miss your culture altogether. Wow. And so when we ask these questions, how countercultural are you? I just want to start there. That I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about me. Okay, we're all in this thing together. But I ask a couple questions. Now, it says there are a couple quick questions, and I wrote that earlier in the week. Um, they're not really that quick, okay? So, number one. First one goes pretty quick. Second one will be there a while. First question that flows out of this whole study, then, is are you taking your cues from Christ or the culture? In your life... I'd like you to evaluate that today. Who do you take your cues from? When you make decisions in your life of what you do, what you believe, what your values are, what your priorities are, are you taking them from Christ or are you taking them from the culture? See, we all have people that we look to as authorities in our life. We all have to decide, what do we really believe about life? What is right? What is wrong? How should we live? What should my values be? What should my priority? We all have to decide that. The question is, how do you decide that in your life? 
Does it come from your parents and the way you were raised? Is that the authority in your life? Is it from key teachers that have made an influence? Is it from famous athletes that you admire? Is it from your friends? Is it from the media? Is it from CNN? Is it from TV? Is it from People magazine? Is it from your favorite talk show host? You know, Oprah is your authority. Is it from respected professors or authors in our culture, scientists? Like, who are the authorities in your life? So we each have to answer this question. Who do we take our cues from when we're making the important decisions of life? See, the problem in Corinth was that they had become Christians, God's Spirit had entered in, but they were taking their cues from the culture, not from Christ, not from His Spirit. And we'll see it all through the book. And so Paul wants us to understand at the outset, if you and I are going to grow up, if the church of Rocky Peak, we're going to be grow up to be the church God wants us to be, we have to answer this question. Who are we taking our cues from? And are we willing to be counter-cultural? Are we willing to be thought of as fools in order that we can actually become wise? And throughout this series, in chapter by chapter, we're going to walk through with this dysfunctional church. We're going to get to walk through with this master therapist, the Apostle Paul. And chapter by chapter, he's going to say, okay, let's talk about this area of your life. You know how you're thinking? That's like really worldly wisdom. Here's how God's wisdom is. And issue by issue, we're going to walk through this. And so we're going to talk about issues like, like maturity. What a spiritual maturity looks like. I bet you're going to be surprised what he says. Um, he's going to talk about the supernatural and the place of the supernatural in our Christian experience. He's going to talk about leadership. What is true, godly, wise leadership look like? What is uh, uh, sex? Where's sex? How does that fit in? Well, what's good? What's bad? Uh, where does it fit? Where does it not fit? Uh, conflict. He's going to talk about how do you deal conflict in your life? Do you do it like the world or do you do it like Christ? He's going to talk to us about marriage and divorce and singleness. He's going to talk to us about lifestyle issues. He's going to talk to us about temptation. How do you deal with temptation in your life? Are you dealing with the world's way or are you dealing with God's way? He's going to talk to us about spiritual gifts and the next life and finances. And you see, chapter by chapter, we're going to go through and he's going to say, this is how the world thinks about it. Now, this is how God thinks about it. And each of us is going to have to decide, are we going to take our cues from Christ or are we going to take our cues from the culture? And here's what I'm, here's what I'm predicting. I would guess for every one of us in this room, there are going to be times as we go through this series, you are not going to like what the Word of God says. There are going to be times in this series you go, I don't agree with that. There's going to be times you say, oh, I don't think so. There's going to be times you you've got to be kidding. Oh, I don't... You see? And at those moments of our Christian life are the critical moments of our walk. Because at those moments, we decide whether we're going to take our cues from Christ or our culture. And what we decide determines whether we grow up or we stay spiritually mature. You see? It's at those points where there's a collision. A collision between Christ and the culture. It's our choices and moments of collision that determine whether we grow or that we stay infants. You see? Okay, number two. The second question really follows hard on the heels of number one. And it goes like this. Are you compromising with the culture? So the question is, are there any areas in your life you knowingly are making compromises? You know what Christ says, but you're allowing the culture to call the shots. Is that happening in your life? Now, the Corinthians, they wanted to be liked. That was 
the problem. They wanted to, they wanted their culture, they wanted to follow Jesus, but they wanted to fit in. There was a peer pressure thing going on here. And so they were compromising their commitment to Christ in order to fit in. And we've all been there, right? We, we all, we understand this pressure. We all, we all get it. We all know peer pressure doesn't stop in junior high, right? And it just goes on, changes shapes, changes names, changes forms. But we all deal with this in our life. And there's a tremendous desire as human beings to fit in. But here's the thing. It's also a very dangerous uh, area of our life. It makes us vulnerable. Because this desire to fit in causes us to compromise. I want you to take your Bibles. Uh, we're going to go see what Jesus said about this. I want you to go to John chapter 15. Now, just, just checking, we are followers of Jesus here, right? Okay. Some of you seem to think so. We're followers of Christ, right? That's right. We're, we're the church of Jesus Christ at Rocky Peak, right? We are followers of Jesus. So we're going to say, we're going to go and see what does Jesus say about our relationship with our culture, okay? And we're going to find out how we feel about this. So in chapter 15 and verse 18... Jesus says, if the world hates you, you should feel bad about that. Oh, heresy Bible. If the world hates you, you must be doing something wrong. Is that what your Bible says? (laughs) No. Now let me be really clear here. When Jesus says the world hates you, he's not saying, therefore, be a jerk for Jesus. There are Christians out there the world hates, and they really deserve everything they get, right? They're just obnoxious, and they're obnoxious in the name of Jesus. And then they want to say, oh, I'm so persecuted. You're not being persecuted for Jesus. You're being persecuted because you're acting like a jerk. It wouldn't matter whether you're a Buddhist or a Hindu or new way, it wouldn't make any difference. You're just being rude, and you're just, you're just like, you're just irritating, you know? So I want to be clear here. We want to make sure we get this, that we are not being called to be irritating for Jesus, okay? The world's going to hate us. It's not because of the way we come across. It's because of the core values, right? But listen to what he says. If the world hates you, he says, don't worry about it, <laughs> Keep in mind, it hated me first. That's what he's saying. He said, hey, if the world hates you, whatever. Look how they did to me. They're going to kill me. You know? If, if the world doesn't like you, it just shows you're on the right team. You know? You're probably doing something right. He said, if you belong to the world, it would love you as it loves its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. Do you understand that? Brothers and sisters, if you're a follower of Jesus, you don't belong to the world anymore. It says, I have chosen you out. Do you understand this? That the moment you gave your life to Jesus, you moved through a spiritual time zone. The moment you gave your life to Jesus, the Bible says in Colossians 1, you were transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved Son. And Galatians chapter 1, it says the moment you gave your life to Jesus, you were rescued from this present evil age. You see, there was a transfer of location spiritually. And so Jesus has chosen us out of the world. We no longer belong to this world. Our citizenship is in another kingdom. We are now visitors in a foreign land. 
And so he says, verse 20, Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, guess what? They're going to persecute you. What Jesus is saying, what the Apostle Paul is saying, men and women, we're called to be countercultural. We're basically just ahead of our time as Christians. We're ahead of our time. You see, one day the whole world will know that Jesus is Lord. We just know it sooner. Right now the world doesn't understand that. And so they look at us, they think we're ridiculous, they think we're, we're silly. One day they'll catch up. The reason we know it has nothing to do with our brightness. It has to do with God's mercy. But the fact is, as Christians, we are ahead of the time. I, I was reading this week, my, one of my favorite business magazines is uh, Fast Company. And I was reading the May version comes, and I just always look forward to Fast Company coming. And uh, there was this one section called Exhibit A, and it says, Dumb Things That Very Smart People Said. <laughs> Uh, first quote is from Bill Gates. Now, if you're not a computer person, this probably won't seem humorous to you at all. But what I would suggest is just when the computer people here start laughing, you laugh with them, all right? Because I guarantee you it's really funny if you understood this. So, so Bill Gates, back in 1981, said 640,000 bytes of memory, so that's back like a 64K machine, 640,000 bytes of memory, it ought to be enough for everybody, <laughs> Thank you, computer people. <laughs> okay, uh, let's go on. Uh, IBM chairman Thomas Watson, you know, founder of IBM back in 1943, he said, you know, I think as I look ahead that there's a world market for maybe five computers. <laughs> <laughs> now, here's one, here's one. John Van Neumann, he was the president of the, the American Society of Mathematicians. I mean, brilliant guy. He was uh, one of the uh, founders of kind of quantum mechanics and that whole how that works. Uh, one of the pioneers in the computer industry. Back in 1949, he says, it would appear that we've reached the limits of what's possible to achieve with computer technology. <laughs> now here's the best part. Although one should be careful with such statements as they tend to sound pretty silly in five years. <laughs> Here was one, Robert Metcalf. Now Robert Metcalf was the man that he and his buddy, they uh, designed, they, they came up with the Ethernet, whole Ethernet deal for high-speed computers and uh, you know, high-speed uh, Internet and all that. Either. So, so back in uh, 1995, he was one of the founders of 3Com. Uh, in 1995, he said, you know, the Internet will catastrophically collapse in 1996. <laughs> I think we passed it, right? You know, you think back through the history of mankind. Some of the things that really brilliant, the wisest people of our day once believed that turned out to be foolish. Uh, you know, there was a time when the wisest minds in the human race believed that the earth was flat and that anyone who believed the earth was round was ridiculous, a fool, right? There was a time when the most brilliant minds of our race, the most brilliant medical people, thought that if someone got sick, the best thing to do for them was to drain their blood out of them, right? There was a time when the wisest minds of our world said, that man will never fly. We were not designed to fly. You cannot create a flying machine. And that anyone who says otherwise is a fool. You see, Christians are just ahead of our time. 
We are called the fools right now. But one day, the rest of the world will catch up and they will know what we know already. And so here's Paul's point. So if you want to be wise, quit trying to fit in. Don't join the flatter society. <laughs> you know, you've got to do life a different way. These people don't get it. So don't take your standards and your choices from people who don't get it. You have to be willing to have the courage to be thought of as fool to be the people who discover the whole new world. See? If you believe the world is flat, you're never going to discover America. See? Now, let's look at one other passage. James chapter 4. To the right in your Bibles, a little book of James. James, of course, is the half-brother of Jesus. Same mother, different father. And so he writes this little book. He's writing to a group of Christians that are really compromising with the world around them. And he starts off in verse 4. It's hard to find, isn't it, a little book? You're still working on it. 4-4. Four, four. You adulterous people. Now when God starts a conversation like that with you, <laughs> it's not a good day. Uh, Mike, uh, you adulterous man. I was like, oh no, here it comes. Uh, you adulterous people. He says, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Wow. I mean, we're serious. We're getting serious here, aren't we? Here's another statement. Next one. Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Wow. C can you say countercultural? <laughs> I mean, like... Do you get it? And here's the thing. This week in your life group homework, I've chosen seven passages that talk about our relationship with the world that you're going to be studying in your life group homework this week of what our relationship with the world is going to be. Now, so how do we know if we're compromising? Well, you know, in the Christian community, at least in my lifetime, which is getting longer all the time, in my lifetime, we've often misunderstood the issue. We've, we've often said, hey, as Christians, as a church, we shouldn't be worldly. And then we've decided what worldly is and they're things that really have nothing to do with worldliness. Um, let me give you some examples. Over my lifetime, um, what kind of clothes we wear? Uh, I mean, clothes should be modest, but beyond that, what kind of clothes we wear? Oh, those are worldly clothes. Um, oh, our hairstyle. I remember when the hippies came out. Oh, no, Christians had to have short hair, you know, that that was the godly haircut, was the short hair. And uh, I guess we just kind of forgot that Jesus probably had long hair. But anyway, that's another story. Um, uh, music styles. You know, there was a time where, like, oh, that beat, you know, that's a worldly beat. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, uh, our form of entertainment. Uh, uh, there was a time when, oh, to be worldly meant you played cards. You know, how about fish? No, that's worldly. You know, it's... Uh, uh, our, you know, movies, even to go to a movie. There was a time when the church was like, no, movies, those are not good. Doesn't matter what's in the movie, just movies are not. You, you see what I'm saying? You see what I'm saying? We've often defined this uh, alcohol in the history of the church. Now, if you choose not to drink alcohol, that may be a good choice for you. I'm not saying that's a bad choice at all. Don't misunderstand me. But there was a time when to drink alcohol meant that you were worldly. 
We kind of skipped that chapter where Jesus made 90 gallons of wine at the wedding. And the people said, whoa, normally they, bring out, they give you the good stuff first, and then when you're drunk, they give out the, bring out the bad stuff. See, because you can't tell the difference. You've saved the best stuff for last. He not only made wine, he made like classic wine. You know, it's like aged before it's time. Wow. We, see, we've often defined worldliness in categories. They're not worldly. They're irrelevant. <laughs> and then the church becomes irrelevant because we're measuring the wrong things. See, in the New Testament, when it talks about being worldly, and you'll study it this week, it's talking about our core value systems. It's talking about our core choices. It's talking about the moral code that's all through the New Testament, the core moral code. It's talking about what we believe about Jesus and God and salvation and these core things. So what's it look like? What does it look like to compromise? Well, let's say you're a high school, you're a college student. could be older. But if you're high school or college student, what does that look like to compromise? It could be going, going out partying with your friends and getting wasted so you fit in. What does it look like if you're a single adult? It might mean not holding on to, it might be being sexually impure so that you can, can keep the date or keep your boyfriend or keep your girlfriend who would leave you if you said, no, I'm going to follow Jesus in this area. Uh, for the businessmen, what does it look like to compromise? It might mean compromising your integrity or ethics in order to hold on to a contract or to get a deal? What does it look like if for a university prof? It might mean that you, you, you uh, pretend you don't believe in Jesus or in absolute moral values so that you can get tenure or keep your position. For a married couple, it might look like giving up your commitment to, to marriage so that you can be happy. It takes a hundred and thousand different forms of what it means to be worldly. But at the core, there's always a contradiction of the core values or core teachings about reality that's in the New Testament. When you stop and think about why we compromise so many times, it's exactly because of what the Corinthians were doing. They compromised because they wanted to fit in they wanted to have their cake and eat it too. They wanted to have Jesus and they wanted to be popular. I think of our culture today and how the culture is, is crushing in on the church in, in America and how the church of Jesus Christ in America doesn't wake up and resist these influences. We're going to become even more irrelevant than we are. Let me give you some examples. This whole area of sexual purity. Let me ask you something. Paul says, if you want to be wise, you have to be willing to be considered a fool. Let me ask you something. If you're a single adult and you're at your place of business and you tell someone, yeah, I've been dating someone for a year, but we haven't had sex because we're waiting towards, till marriage. How do you think that's going to go over? More times than not. Every once in a while, someone will say, good for you. But more times than not, isn't it true that often it's like you will be seen as naive, old-fashioned, out of touch, archaic, a fool. I mean, how are, are you even going to know if you're compatible <laughs> if you haven't slept with someone? You know, as if that's the key to marriage. Like, oh, hey, that was really good. Let's get married. It's like, whatever. <laughs> uh, what are you doing Tuesday? I'm free. Okay, here's another one. Spiritual, oh, oh, on the, while we're on the sexuality term, here's a hot one. How about homosexuality? Why our culture today, your place of business, if you're nice and kind, you love people, and someone says, what do you think about that? You say, well, you know, actually, 
I think it's the wrong choice. I think it's morally wrong. I don't think it's the way God designed it. I don't think it's healthy. I don't think it builds people up. How's that going to go over? Wow. You may be seen as worse than a fool or outdated or uh, old-fashioned. You may be seen as a religious zealot or a bigot. That's the reality in our world today, right? Are you willing to be a fool so you can be wise? Uh, here's, a, here's one. Um, spirituality. You know, our whole relationship with God. I don't know if you've noticed, but our culture right now is really big on spirituality. Uh, it's like, in fact, uh, if you don't have some sort of spirituality in your life, you're probably seen as a redneck or something. You know, it's just like, oh man, you're really out there. You're behind that. I mean, it doesn't really matter what it is. You can be Hare Krishna. You can be, uh, 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 you know, Buddhist. You can be Jewish, you can be Christian. doesn't matter. As long as you don't put it on anyone else. You can be anything you want as long as you don't believe it's really true. Yeah, I mean, because all paths lead to, the, to God. All, all paths lead to the same place, right? It's like, hello? No, what's similar between all the world's religions is are the, the moral code. That's what's similar. That's because it's written on the human heart. God wrote it there. If you study the world religions, they're all to- totally opposite of what they teach about who God is, our, who we are in our relationship. Totally opposite. How can they all be true? They're totally opposite. And yet our culture today, everyone's happy with you like being spiritual until you say, you know what, I think you need Jesus in your life. And at that point, you become a zealot and a bigot, don't you? See? Let me give you another example. Heaven and hell, the next life. Is there a heaven? Is there a hell? I think majority opinion in our country today is that there is a heaven. In fact, pretty much everyone's going there. Um, uh, uh, Hell is not so popular. Uh, Hell is not on, on the hot list right now. Um, in fact, well, no pun intended, but, uh, uh, you know, think about it. Have you ever been to a funeral where someone says, oh, there goes Frank. Live like hell. Treat me like hell. So great he's in heaven. Like, no one says that, right? It's impossible in our culture to go to hell today. Maybe Hitler, right? Now, let me tell you something. I want to be really honest with you. I do not like the biblical teaching about hell. If I could write the Bible any way I wanted, I would take it out. I'd have it like this. You follow Jesus, you go to heaven. You don't follow Jesus, we erase you. Okay? You're just kind of like, sorry, poof, you're gone. That's how I would do it. Because this whole concept of hell, it's not really, it doesn't go. Well, why? Because I'm a product of my culture. And in our culture, unlike that, and so that's right. But have you ever stopped to think about it? Like, what I think really doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't really matter whether Mike Yearly likes hell or not. What really matters is what's true. And what really matters is what God thinks. And so, in my life, I say, look, I don't like this whole idea. I wish it weren't true. But Jesus says it is true. And I need to take my cues from him and not my culture. And so Jesus comes along and he says, not only is there a hell, but he says, I'm telling you, you better do whatever it takes to avoid the place. Cut off your right hand, pluck out your right eye, do whatever it takes, you do not want to go to hell. And I sit up and go, you are the boss. You are the man. You rose from the dead, no one else has done that, I'm following you. You know, your resume is amazing. So you see, our culture's pressing in on us, and 
over and over in so many areas, the basic message is, what all these messages I've talked about have in common is if you follow Jesus, you are a fool. That's what they all have in common. And here's the truth of it, is that if you don't follow Jesus, you are a fool. And if we're going to grow up here as followers of Jesus, we have to come to grips with this whole countercultural issue. See, the, the church at Corinth, it was making a huge mistake. It wanted its cake and eat it too. It wanted to have Jesus and the Holy Spirit and the promise of new life and their life change, and it wanted to hold on to the value system of the culture. They, want, they were walking down the middle of the spiritual freeway. They were, they were walking down the middle of a country road, two-lane country road, walking right down the middle, trying to have it both ways. And if you've never stopped and think about it, when you walk down the middle of the road, you get hit from both directions. It doesn't work. And so Paul comes to us and says, men and women, you are counterculture at the core. Jesus has called you to be a countercultural people. And if you want to grow up, and you want to be wise, and you want to experience the abundant life Jesus came to give you, guess what? You have to have the courage to be seen as a fool so that you will not be part of the flat earth society spiritually so you can be truly wise. Let's pray together. As our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, I I promised you earlier that if you have not given your life to Jesus, I'm going to give you that chance right here and now. So let me talk to you while, while our uh, heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. I want to talk to those of you who have not given your life to Christ. You're here today. You know the story. You understand it. He died for your sins. He rose from the dead. You believe that, but you've never had a time in your life where you said yes to Jesus, and that's what it takes. It takes you opening your life to say, Jesus, I see now what the world says is ridiculous. It's really the truth, and I don't even understand all this today. I don't even understand how it works, but I know that I need you And that happens in your life the moment you ask Jesus in. And I'm just going to pray a very simple prayer. And if this is the desire of your heart today, just pray along with me in your heart and ask Christ in. Dear Jesus, I believe in you. I believe you died and rose again for me. I ask you to come into my life to forgive my sins, to change me from the inside out, to give me your Holy Spirit and to teach me how to follow you. I surrender control of my life to you. I give you the steering wheel of my life. I ask you to reserve a space in heaven for me. While our eyes are still closed and heads are bowed, in just a moment we'll be taking the morning's offering and collecting registration cards. If you've prayed that prayer today, would you write me a note and say, Mike, I prayed the prayer. And I'll send you a letter this week and give you some next steps you can take to follow in this new life you're starting today with Jesus. And we'll also be able to pray for you this week. Lord, as a congregation now, Rocky Peak, we come before you as your church and we say, Lord, we want to have the courage to be counterculture We admit, Lord, that many times we have compromised. We've compromised because we want to fit in. We've compromised because we want to be popular. Lord, we acknowledge that our lives, often we're not experiencing the life you came and died to give us simply because we have not changed the way that we thought. And we pray that you'd give us the courage to go against the flow, to swim upstream, to listen to you, to take our cues from you, not from the culture. 
you could transform us, transform our minds so we can experience your will for our lives, that which is good and pleasing, your perfect will. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Looking forward to next weekend as we talk about another major part of what it means to follow Jesus. Um, the, the sermon's called Supernatural. And this, this journey that we're on, this relationship, this is not a willpower thing. This is a, this is a God thing. And it's part of what it means to follow Jesus is a supernatural experience. And so we're going to be seeing what the Apostle Paul has to do as we cover chapter 2 next week. So you want to get a head start, you can start reading in chapter 2 and get familiar with that. May the Lord bless you and be with you this week. May he give you the courage to stand against the culture, even as he did. He said that if the world hated him, there will times, well, it will hate us as well. May we have the courage to be, appear to be fools, so that in reality we can be wise. God bless you. We'll see you next weekend. Well, that's going to do it for this week's message. We hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have putting it together. Please visit us at rockypeak.org where you can download more messages or have your questions answered. Remember, you can subscribe to our weekly podcast for free by searching for The Church at Rocky Peak from within the music store in your iTunes software. For Lead Pastor Mike Yearly and everybody up here at The Peak, thanks for listening. Thank you.